Welcome to the Biotech Pod, where today we're joined by Dr. Anna Blakeney. Dr. Anna Blakeney is a professor of bioengineering at UBC, a COVID-19 vaccine researcher, a member of Hashtag Team Halo, and a TikTok star with over 3 million likes and 200,000 followers. Professor Blakeney's lab is a multidisciplinary group of engineers, immunologists, molecular biologists, all investigating the interactions between RNA, biomaterials, and the immune system to prevent and treat disease. Aside from leading the Blakeney Lab, she has amassed millions of views on TikTok as a part of Hashtag Team Halo, where she's working on debunking vaccine myths, dispelling rumors, and educating through short and fun videos. Join us today as we discuss the trajectory of RNA vaccines, TikTok, and the vaccine rollout here in Canada. Hi, Dr. Blakeney. How have you been lately? Yeah, really good. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I know you're an outdoor enthusiast. Have you been able to go outside during your free time, enjoy any of the good weather we've been having? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually just moved to Vancouver in January from London, England. And so it's, I've realized it's so nice, especially during lockdowns and any sort of restrictions to live really close to nice nature. So yeah, I've been frequenting, you know, the forests and the beaches for walks and hikes and stuff, which has been great. Yeah, Vancouver is great for that. There's so much scenery. I absolutely love it. Just to delve into it quickly, we noticed that you're involved in Team Halo, which is a group of scientists across the globe who are working on vaccine literacy, which is a profoundly important thing today. Team Halo has amassed over 50 million views across social media platforms. Can you tell us a little bit more about Team Halo and how you got involved with this sort of initiative? Yeah, absolutely. So I've always been really passionate about doing public engagement stuff for science. And um, so last year I was doing a lot of that while I was working as a postdoc at Imperial College. So I, um, while I was there, I was part of a team that worked on a COVID-19 vaccine. So um, which, yeah, finished its combined phase one and two clinical trial in January. And so, yeah, I think just as a scientist, I realized it was, as you said, more important than ever to be educating people about this. Because if you think about it, you know, there's no point in making these vaccines if nobody's going to take them, right? So I was actually recruited to Team Halo. So they called me randomly one day um, and asked. So they kind of explained, um, you know, we're an organization. We started as a collaboration between the UN and the Vaccine Competence Project. And the whole idea is to connect scientists and clinicians who are working on COVID-19 to the general public over TikTok. And I had never been on TikTok before. And so I was like, mm, like a little bit skeptical about <laughs> how this is going to go. But um, I'm actually a total convert now. I think it's like the perfect platform to be able to educate people about this because it's just everything about it, I think, is just really well suited. So, um, you know, it's like it's these short, like 15 or 60 second videos and you um, it's just like a very palatable amount of information for people. And you can actually show them, you know, in the lab, what it looks like to make a vaccine or to test a vaccine. And I think that transparency is really important. Wow, that definitely sounds a very educative initiative. So just keep going on that topic. Do you think this platform facilitates the communication and discussions between both academic scientists as well as the uh, general public? Yeah, I definitely think so. So I wasn't quite sure what it was going to be like when I first started doing it, but I've actually had some really great discussions with people on there, which sounds, you know, very counterintuitive for having like productive discussions in TikTok comment sections. Um, but the really cool thing is that like, 
you know, there's, I do like a whole range of videos really, but some of the time I'll like actually present data and, you know, talk about it. And that's more of like where the discussions happen. And so it's cool to actually just be getting, you know, data from peer reviewed journals and clinical trials out to people. And, you know, you can like put the link in the comments and then actually talk about it. And I think that's, it's like very much not like the standard on any sort of social media, but it's cool to be able to do that because, you know, yeah, it's just the connection that doesn't always happen. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think in terms of like vaccine literacies, people like aren't necessarily educated on what's going on and meeting them where they already are at is so important. And you kind of like already build that bridge so you can just meet them halfway. Yeah, exactly. I think that's super important. Yeah. And if you think back, like something that I think is really important to keep in mind is that if you think back to January, 2020, how many scientists even knew what an RNA vaccine was or like how it worked. Right. So, you know, an even smaller proportion of the general public knew what an RNA vaccine was, but now millions of people have gotten them. So there's such a lag between how quickly the science progresses and then how well that's communicated to the public. Absolutely. I always find that like the diffusal of it is just so much slower. And Mm -hmm. so kind of like the acceptance of it can also lag. But with the pandemic, it's so important to have everyone accept it super quickly because we need people to get vaccinated. So I think like the Team Halo initiative is so awesome. And I've seen you guys on TikTok a lot too. So really cool to see that bridge happen. To keep going on the topic of the vaccine and even on TikTok and other social media platforms, a lot of people are kind of vocal about, you know, what the rollout that the vaccine rollout has been for them. And so we found that there was kind of a lot of backlash going on uh, specifically about the vaccine rollout in Canada, especially with the rise of variant cases and, you know, BC and, you know, records being broken. I think one just got broken yesterday. So what were your overall thoughts on the vaccine rollout here in Canada? And is, is there anything you think we could be doing better? Yeah, I think, I think like one of the most interesting things about this, the, I guess Canada in particular is that actually a lot of this technology for the vaccines has come out of Canada. So this is something that I've also tried to highlight recently is that, so Peter Cullis's lab here at UBC, um, he really pioneered like the entire field of lipid nanoparticles. And he started a company called Acuitas, which did the formulation for the Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine, as well as a few other vaccines, including the one I worked on at Imperial. So it's really wild that, um, you know, that technology was created here, but yet Canada doesn't produce its own vaccines, right? So that's really the main problem. And I think like that will, I think that will change in the future. I think there's a lot of people trying to change that in the future, but of course, if you're not making your own vaccine, you know, you're relying on other people and there's all of these politics involved as well. So I think it's, you know, everybody wants a vaccine today, um, but it just happens at different paces in different places. Yeah, I think upscaling manufacturing or just even the supply chain for the uh, vaccine is definitely an issue for Canada, especially when it comes to, for example, personal protective equipment. It seems that the supply chain of Canada was also slightly uh, slower than in the U.S., so there has been a lot of importing from the U.S. as well, and then that issue can get quite difficult at some point. Yeah, but thank you so much for the great insight on this issue. So moving forward, we know that recently there are a lot of discussion around our COVID vaccine, which is super exciting since it's the first time we ever implemented this type of vaccine in the pandemic setting. So could you tell us a bit more about RNA COVID vaccines? What are the differences between conventional and nucleic acid vaccines? And could you perhaps shed some light on their mechanism of action, efficacy, as well as in vivo delivery? 
Sure. Yes. That's a lot of topics. So I'll try and get through them all. Um, so for, I like to start like thinking about these different vaccine modalities by thinking about what we're trying to do. So with any vaccine, so if we take specifically the case of SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, um, what we're trying to do is train your body to recognize a protein. And the protein that we're trying to train your immune system to recognize is called the spike protein, and it's found on the surface of the virus. So there's a lot of different ways that we can get that protein into your body. So we could use just the protein itself. And there's some vaccine companies that have developed vaccines like that. We could use just inactivated form of the virus, um, which is a more like historical, traditional way to do it. Or the two kind of different strategies that are now approved vaccines are using viral vectors or RNA vaccines. And they're actually like, there's some like nuanced differences, but it's basically viral delivery and non-viral delivery of a nucleic acid. So for the AstraZeneca and Oxford vaccine and the Johnson and Johnson vaccines, these are adenoviruses that contain DNA that encodes the spike protein, whereas for the RNA vaccines, it's RNA that encodes the spike protein that's encapsula encapsulated in a lipid nanoparticle. So those are like the major, I don't know, physical differences <laughs> between them. Um, they all have basically the same like mechanism of action. So they're injected into your muscle, the cells take them up, they express that spike protein, and then that's what your immune system recognizes. You develop antibodies to that, and that hopefully prevents you from getting infected with COVID-19. Um, as far as, um, I guess, the major differences between them, so for the RNA vaccines, there's not huge differences between them. Um, you know, the Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine is a slightly lower dose. It's 30 micrograms of RNA, but it's in a very similar formulation. Um, whereas the Moderna one is hundred micrograms of RNA. So it's slightly higher. Um, I guess, you know, the efficacy of both the RNA vaccines is really, really high. So it's like greater than 94% for both of them, um, which is really amazing for a vaccine, especially since, because before last year, like we had no idea if RNA vaccines would even work. So that's, that was really an exciting thing in the field. Um, so yeah, I, I think like compared to, uh, I guess the viral vector vaccines, um, what's important going forward is, you know, thinking about how long they pr protect for, which is still being determined, right? Like you can't know that until time passes. So we're finding out new stuff every day. Yeah, thanks for all that detail about these vaccines and shedding some light on the different kinds of vaccines, how they're being used right now. And so just to continue on the topic of RNA vaccines, let's discuss some of these vaccines and their current usage in the pandemic even further. So what do you think are the major differences between the mRNA vaccines, such as the Pfizer and Biotech, and also the Moderna one, which stores instructions in single-stranded RNA versus the Oxford AstraZeneca one, which uses double-stranded DNA? Yeah, so it's just a, a different nucleic acid, right? So it's it's just two different approaches to getting the protein translated. So I guess historically, like, you know, DNA delivery has been much more, I guess, widely studied, um, which was really just because we didn't quite have the technology or, um, yeah, the, there's been a number of innovations in RNA that have made it like really a viable vaccine technology, I would say probably in the past 10 years or so. And so before that, there was a lot more like people just tended to use DNA vaccines more. Um, but actually, you know, delivering DNA or delivering RNA, um, it's very similar. Other than that, you know, the DNA is then, you know, transcribed into RNA and then translated into protein, whereas the mRNA is just directly translated into the protein. 
I see. Well, thanks for the crash course on viral vector delivery versus nucleic acid notes taken. So now let's switch gear to the more uh, research side. So during the pandemic, your lab has been working on vaccine formulation and testing. So what are the most major developments that you have been able to make? Yeah, so I um, so I just started my lab at UBC in January, so I'm still like in the process of setting it up here. I guess the work that I did more work as a postdoc on delivery of RNA vaccines. So um, there's actually a few different types of delivery methods that have been used for RNA vaccines. It's like a pretty wide field, although the most obviously the most like clinically advanced are lipid nanoparticles. Um, but there's actually a few different ways you can do it. I mean, the whole paradigm is that RNA is this large negatively charged molecule, right? And so this, your cell membrane is also negatively charged. So they repel each other. It's not going to get spontaneously taken up. So you have to neutralize that charge and make it into a particle to get it into the cell. There's a number of ways to do that. Lipid nanoparticles are one way. Um, but I, I've also looked at using other, other formulations. So like using a cationic polymer to complex with the RNA um, works very similarly. It's a positive and negative charge. Um, and then it makes a, a tiny nanoparticle. Um, so there's, yeah, lots of different ways to do that. I think we're starting to understand in the fields, um, I guess like kind of the major question in the delivery side of things is, we still don't have a great idea of like which cells we're trying to target, how we target those cells. And so I think that's, that's where the delivery really comes into play. Like for me, in my mind, like the plane is off the ground now, right? Like we have vaccines that work and work really well, but I think we'll continue to learn, you know, more of the mechanisms behind them and then be able to use that knowledge to make the vaccines even better. Those sound like some really interesting and exciting future advancements. I think I'm really looking forward to them. And just to bring up self-amplifying RNA vaccines, what are some characteristics of this vaccine platform that drew your attention to it in the first place? Yeah, so self-amplifying RNA, for those who aren't familiar, is basically just a type of messenger RNA. So has a lot of the same structural components and you make it in the similar way. Um, the only difference is that it encodes four other proteins, which form a replicase. So that replicase, once it's in the cell, is able to go back and make copies of that original strand of RNA. And so you can imagine once it makes like more copies of that RNA, you get a much higher level of protein expression. Um, and what's really useful about this is it allows you to minimize the dose of RNA that you need. So I think of this as kind of like a next generation RNA vaccine where, um, you know, one of the, the I guess, advancements or challenges that we need to make now is really cutting down on the dose of RNA that's required because we've seen from these clinical trials that the more RNA you use, the more side effects you have. And so, um, you know, being able to minimize that, not just for the side effects, but then that would also minimize the cost and, you know, make it so that with the same, you know, volume or batch of RNA vaccine, you could actually use it for a lot more people. Um, so I think that's like a, a pretty obvious next step to take. So self-amplifying RNA is just one way to do that. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely sounds like SARNA vaccines are a promising future candidate in the scaled up vaccine manufacturing, given their uh, self-replicating properties. So in addition, we also see that you have performed numerous improvements on the SARNA vaccine platform. For example, in some of your past publication, you investigated the impacts of its molecular weight, use of the cationic adjuvant, as well as the innate inhibiting proteins in one of your more recent publications. So could you quickly comment on these parameters uh, you have 
have studied and what are some of the remaining challenges in improving the delivery and uh, immunogenicity of the sCRNA vaccines? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess there's a number of yeah, strategies that we've looked at. Um, so I think kind of one of the coolest ones that you've mentioned is this idea of incorporating these interferon inhibiting proteins into the RNA. Um, so I can explain that a little bit if you want. So basically, Absolutely. yeah, the inspiration came from actually like nature, really. So um, lots of RNA viruses have evolved to have um, these proteins that become part of the virus. And the whole idea is that, you know, our cells, your body has evolved to recognize these foreign RNA viruses. Um, and so they have these certain patterns that they recognize. And when you see that, you shut down the translation in that cell because it recognizes it as a virus. And so you're trying to prevent yourself from, you know, getting a more severe infection, right? So this also happens when we use RNA, messenger RNA in vaccines, your body recognizes it as foreign and it can shut down the translation in the cell, which is obviously not what we want to happen. So viruses have evolved these proteins that inhibit that pathway so that they can replicate more and drive an infection. And our question was, can we use those same proteins to not drive an infection, but be able to increase the amount of protein expression that we get from our RNA and then be able to minimize the dose even more. So um, that's what we did. We basically just put another protein into, the, or I guess encoded another protein in the RNA. So made it e even bigger, <laughs> um, but it did. Yeah. So it does actually really increase the protein expression um, from what we saw. So um, yeah, I think it's, it's a really interesting field thinking about, you know, studying the RNA that's in nature and then trying to use some of these kind of nature inspired approaches to making our vaccines even better. I love how that was able to kind of like inspire you and you took from nature. That's so awesome. Like we're going to take a quick detour now to learn more about you and how you got to where you are today. So from earning your bachelor's at the University of Colorado to your PhD at the University of Washington, then completing your postdoc at Imperial College London, and now, you know, finally an assistant professor at UVC, what initially motivated you to pursue research in the first place? Yeah, it's a great question. So for me, um, I actually started doing research as an undergrad as part of a summer program. And so um, it was just like a thing I just randomly applied for and got into. And I was really lucky because the advisor I had as an undergrad was just an incredible mentor. And so um, I actually like during that, yeah, just kind of realized that I loved doing research. Like I just found it so fascinating to do experiments and like be able to answer a question. And for me, like, especially during undergrad, that was super important because I think it helped just like motivate my studies in general. Cause it's like, you do all this like really conceptual learning and none of it is very hands-on for the most part, you know, you do some labs and stuff like that, but a lot of it is just like equations and learning like <laughs> the, the basics of everything. Right. So I always, really liked like having a, like an avenue to be able to apply that. So that's kind of how I really like, yeah, fell in love with research was just getting the experience. So that's what I always try and tell people is like, you know, try lots of different things. You never know what you're going to click with, but you know, you never know until you try it too. 
Yeah, thanks so much for sharing your experience. That does sound like a very fun journey. And as you mentioned earlier, it is really your undergraduate research experience that sort of prompted you into relevant fields. So since the majority of our audience are also undergraduate students aspiring to work in a field related to biomed or biotechnology, and a lot of them may be interested in doing research in an undergraduate lab, do you have any tips or advice on how to approach to a potential supervisor or find a research position as an undergrad? Yeah, absolutely. So lots of universities have um, funding available that you can apply for. Um, but I guess like what I usually suggest to people is just reach out to professors and like, you know, do a little bit of background work and like actually look into their research, see if it's what you're interested in. And then um, usually you get paired up with a graduate student or a postdoc. And so, you know, usually when people email, um, just ask if they have any positions or anybody that like would be able to, you know, be your mentor or your supervisor. Um, but I think the really important thing is just like, you know, kind of knowing a bit about their research and making it clear that you're interested in their lab and not just like any lab, um, because usually, you know, professors are getting lots of inquiries. So it's, it's good to make it personalized. But um, yeah, so also like, you know, like I said, a lot of universities have like funding mechanisms for undergrads, especially in the summer. So keep your eye on those. And that's a really great way to get into it because it also usually means like you get paid to do the research, which I think is really important. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think having kind of like that extra avenue to be able to look past what you're studying beyond just the equations and the concepts you're learning in class is super important. And that's what instilled your curiosity in the first place. So I think that sounds like really great advice. And I think it'll encourage a lot of our viewers to take that first steps and do some research. So thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and just one last question that we have is that you also mentioned about how nanotechnology or like nanoparticle has been greatly involved in the process of, for example, RNA vaccine synthesis and also just drug delivery in general. So for people that might be interested in going into this route, do you have any uh, suggestions on how they can prepare themselves in terms of having that background in nanoparticles? Yeah, sure. So I think it's, yeah, it's interesting. Like, I don't think I ever took a class that was like specifically about like making nanoparticles or characterization, but I hope that starts to make it more into the curriculum. I guess like if there's like biotechnology classes or stuff like that now, they probably have like some nanotechnology education associated with them. Um, I think it's become, it's so important in like basically every aspect of drug delivery now, like very few people are doing drug delivery and it's not on a nano scale. So um, hopefully the preparation and characterization methods that that are geared towards that are, are being taught a little more widely. Um, as far as, I guess, like preparing yourself, I don't know. I honestly think like the best way to do it is to get hands-on experience doing it, which probably means like working in a lab or working for a company that does um, that does those sort of formulations and, and experiments. Right, that definitely makes sense. So just one more follow-up question. So in terms of the nanotechnology or nanoengineering, there are really two main categories, I guess. One of them is more physical, where you look at, for example, the crystal structures and point defects. And one of them, I guess, is more organic chemistry-based. For example, you look more into polymer chemistry or polymerization. So in terms of the uh, biomedical side of the nanotechnology, would it be leaning more towards the organic chemistry side and less physical determination? 
I think it's a combination, actually. Like, I think you kind of need to know it on all the different levels because in the end, they like all have interplay, right? So it's like whatever is happening at that very molecular level, be it with your polymer, the lipids that you're using, um, that actually has a direct impact on like, you know, what is the size of the particle? What are the properties of the particle? And so being able to understand it at each level is is really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Okay, thank you so much, Professor Blakeney, for your invaluable advice on how students can get involved in research. I'm sure our audience will benefit a lot from our discussion today. And with that, we would like to close this episode. And thank you so much, everyone, for spending this wonderful morning with us at Biotech Podcast. <laughs>